Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, we're going to continue our study in Philippians. So turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Just four verses, which will either make this a short sermon or a long one. We'll find out. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even subject all things to himself. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that, uh, that it just blows open so many weird ideas we have. God, we pray that, um, that we would follow good examples. We pray that you would bless our the pastors that you put over us, God, that, that uh, they would not just be teachers, but they would actually uh, be practitioners of the things they preach, Father. Father, we pray that you would bless the church with more faithful men. We pray that we would be uh, a good example of the gospel in our own homes. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be talking about examples tonight, and there's a paper I've been wanting to work into a sermon at some point. Um, so we're going to try to fit it in here. And it's from Touchstone Magazine, and the author is Robbie Lowe. And I believe the title is called The Truth About Men in the Church. And it's just a little bit from it I want to read to you, because uh, it, it does relate to what we're talking about tonight. But in uh, 1994, the Swiss carried out an extra survey that the researchers for our masters in Europe, I write from England, he says, were happy to record. The question was asked to determine whether a person's religion carried through to the next generation, and if so... Why or if not, why not? The result was dynamite. There is one critical factor. It is overwhelming, and it is this. It is a religious practice of the father of the family that, above all, determines the future attendance at or absence from church, uh, from church of the children. If both father and mother attend regularly, 33% of the children will end up as a regular uh, churchgoer. And 41% will end up attending irregularly. Uh, Only a quarter of the children will end up not practicing at all. If the father is irregular and the mother regular, only 3% of the children will subsequently become regular themselves. So if if the father just shows up every once in a while, as opposed to being pretty consistent, it drops from a third all the way down to 3%, uh, irrespective of what the mom does. It's pretty intense. Then he keeps going on and says, um, while a further 59% will become irregular, 38% will be lost. If the father is non-practicing a mother regular, only 2% of children will become regular worshipers. And 37% will attend irregularly. So if dad doesn't go to church, 2% of these people that are raised by a mother to be a Christian, only 2% will continue on in the church in some way, shape, or form. 
Uh, let me skip down to some other stuff. Even when the father is an irregular attender, there are some extraordinary effects. An irregular father and a non-practicing mother will yield 25% of their children as regular attenders in their future life and a further 23% as irregular. So if mom doesn't go to church at all, but dad does, uh, at least a quarter of the kids will, will go to church regularly and an additional 23 will be irregular. And if you flip that, if you just remember a second ago, it was 3% or 2%. Um, then he says... Where neither parent practices, to nobody's uh, very great surprise, only 4% of children become regular attenders. Uh, while mother's regularity on its own has scarcely any long-term effect on children's regularity, it does help prevent children from drifting away entirely. Faithful mothers produce irregular attenders. Non-practicing mothers change their irregulars into non-attenders. But mothers have uh, even their uh, beneficial influence only in complementary with the practice of their father. In short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one in 50 children will become a regular worshiper. If a father does uh, go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the children will become church go- churchgoers. If a father goes, but uh, irregularly to church, regardless of his wife's devotion, between a half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or occasionally. Um, so the point is just, is that dads are such a powerful example in the home, is that kids will do what dad does. And if dad doesn't go to church, usually what children conclude is that's not something for adults. Right? It's not something for mature people. And this is, this is built into creation. This is one reason that the education and discipleship of our children, responsibility falls on the father in Scripture. Uh, but fathers have incredible, incredible responsibility. So dad can be saying all sorts of things. He can be teaching all sorts of things. But if his example is at odds with his instruction, it doesn't matter. Um, and so the general rule is that which is caught will always overpower that which is taught. You know, so... Your example is going to overpower what you say, ultimately. In other words, our example drowns out our words. So keeping that in mind, think of 1 Corinthians 4, or listen to it uh, just for a moment. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is, why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So note here, Paul is connecting spiritual fatherhood. So you've got a lot of teachers, a lot of instructors, but few fathers. Right? Few people that are actually in your life that actually know you, that actually pastor you, that actually care about you. And he connects his spiritual fatherhood uh, to people being imitators of him. Following his examples. He says, my ways in Christ. Uh, So pastors like biological fathers lead by the power of their example. And I don't know how many churches you've been part of. I think I'm at like seven now since I've been a Christian. Uh, But churches do take on the character of their leaders. Right? 
It's just time and time again. I remember when I was in Calvary Chapel, um, a lot of the guys have been discipled by a fellow named Chuck Smith, who was a good brother, um, who's passed away a couple years ago. Chuck always wore Hawaiian shirts and talked really slow. Matter of fact, when we were studying from his tapes, we'd, we'd play his tapes at like three, uh, like not uh, two times, but three times the normal speed. And it's still, it almost sounded normal. It didn't sound, uh, but it's funny how all the pastors in Calvary Chapel would wear their Hawaiian shirt and say, you know, like Chuck, or talk about things being glorious. You'd always say that. And they just take on, they, they just start mimicking him, just like your kids mimic you um, in some ways that you're proud of and in many ways that you're not. Um, but uh, churches take on uh, the character of their pastor just time and time again is true. And that's what's in view in the passage we're looking at today. There are two examples being laid before the Philippians. And those two examples can be broken down into two broad categories. One is the heavenly-minded leader, and the other is the earthly-minded leader. So if you just look at verse 17 uh, through the, the beginning of 18, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. So what Paul, Paul's talking about leaders here. When he's talking about the examples, he's giving himself, follow me and note those that are like me, follow their pattern. Um, so that's over here. And then, he's, and then he says, because many walk. There's other leaders that walk in a way that, that's different than Paul. And uh, so your, who your example and pattern should be, uh, who you should model yourself after is what he's trying to get to. And it's important to note that he's talking about professed Christians. He's not talking about people outside the faith. He's not talking about, and he's not just talking about um, people that like your uh, other people in the pew with you. He has in mind leaders. That's been the context of the entire chapter of people that teach these different doctrines and that's continuing here. Uh, so what he's going after is be w- warning them about a, a sort of Christian leader, a Christian pastor that's ungodly. And that's something that we're not allowed to do in the reform world. We're never allowed to suggest that a pastor may actually be ungodly and not even a Christian. But Paul certainly does it. Now note that Paul does not take joy in pointing, uh, pointing out that these pastors are enemies of the cross. He says uh, even weeping. This is a sad revelation for Paul, and uh, there's something wrong with people that take great joy in sniffing out heretics all the time. You know, I I know we all have friends or uh, have websites, or maybe you've gone through a phase in your walk with God where you're always trying to figure out, like, who's right and who's wrong. Um, Paul's not happy that these men are enemies of the cross. It's a sad thing. Over time, he's... He's come to see that these guys that profess to be Christian leaders, in fact, aren't. So he warns them, and he does it weeping. By the way, I should just point out, men weep. I won't say too much, but if you can't cry, something's probably not right with you. So. But also, notice what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the manner of these pastors' lives. That's what he cares about. The reality of a pastor's life matters. And that's why right now in the mornings we're going through 1 Timothy and we're in 1 Timothy 3. And as we look at the qualifications for someone to be an officer in the church, to be an elder or a pastor, it heavily rests on uh, character, right? Their virtues. 
uh, they're looking, Paul is calling, uh, saying only men who have mature Christian character can be elders in the church. And nowadays, that is not what we look for in pastors. The thing we look for in pastors are people that present well, um, that are eloquent speakers, uh, great scholars, charismatic. It just kind of depends what stream of Christianity you're coming from. But that is not, that is not the emphasis in Scripture. Obviously, you have to have the ability to teach. We're people of the book. Our doctrine is expressed in words. The gospel is news. So someone has to be able to communicate to be a pastor, to be an elder. But to, to be qualified to that office, there is a, re, uh, a quality of life that you must possess. And he's saying these men don't have that. You should follow my example, my, the pattern you see in my life. Not these guys. And these guys are enemies of the cross. Which makes me wonder, how can you emulate the manner of of life of a pastor that you only know from sermons. If you have no relationship with your pastor, if you have no relationship with the, the elders in your church, how do you know the quality of their life? This is my main issue with mega churches. There's no magical number for how big a church can be in Scripture. I don't care how big it is. As long as the people are pastored, and they have elders, and the, and, and the church can function biblically, it's fine. It's also the same problem I have with video venues. These are the churches that set up these big screens. Sometimes they stream it live. Sometimes it's canned from earlier in the morning. And, you know, people come in and get their coffee, and they sit down and watch the screen. Some, there's usually like a live band, uh, because apparently you can't have canned music. That's what I always wonder. Why do they not have canned music, too? If people wouldn't come, that's why. But they'll come for a canned sermon for some reason. But you don't know these people. Um, it's also the same problem I have with Christians that are feeding themselves only via the internet with MP3s or YouTube videos. And these guys will talk about how great these pastors are. How do you know? How do you know the quality of their life? You know nothing other than what they teach and say. You don't know anything about what's going on. And, and, our, and the reason this isn't a problem is we've reduced pastors to preachers. I keep saying this. I know I say it over and over again. But people tend to think of pastors merely as instructors. People that stand up here and are disembodied heads, right, and and say a bunch of theological stuff and make you feel smart or or comfort you or whatever the tactic is that that church wants. But pastors are shepherds. They're in the life of the sheep. And the sheep are to learn from them, right? They they, uh, are to oversee the flock. And, uh, and that's, what Paul's, that's what Paul's concerned about here. Paul's concerned that the, the ungodly example of these men will corrupt the church. Just like a bad dad, or a dad that's not uh, doing what God calls him to, will lead his children astray. Because God has made him a federal head. God has made him um, the pattern which kids, his kids are going to follow. So it is with churches. People emulate their pastors, as they should. But they won't just emulate good pastors. They'll emulate bad pastors as well. And that's what he cares about. Um, it's a constant exhortation from Paul to follow his example. He says in Second uh, Thessalonians 3, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Bad example, right? So I'm going to name Christ 
as Lord, but lives an unruly life, an undisciplined life. Then he says, for you yourself know you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that, you, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. You know what we're about. That's what he's saying. You know what sort of men we are. Um, pastors and officers in the church are to be an example. And it's true of all of us. But those that God gives uh, leadership responsibilities, I mean, you can, you can damage your children, you can damage uh, your, your employees, you can damage those in your church with your sin. That's why it's heavy. That's why not, not many uh, should want to be teachers. You should really count the costs, according to James. And, uh, but he's saying, follow my example. It's funny, I put this up on Facebook, and a guy that I like, he's like, you should follow no one's examples but Jesus, right? Christians should only want to be like Jesus. Well, yeah, but one of the ways we become like Jesus is by emulating godly men. I mean, there it is in Scripture. Scripture says, follow my example, like over and over and over again. And, uh, and it, it, it bears worth pointing out that Christianity is a religion uh, that you can't have by yourself. You can't have, uh, you can't be an individualist and be a Christian. The way God relates to his people is through the church, through the ministry of pastors and, and, and the, other, uh, the other brethren in the church. So, the concern here is to be on the lookout for ungodly leaders. We should care about the character of our leaders. That's why uh, the officer training is 12 weeks. I got that email and I was looking at all we got to go through. And if you've sat through an examination with our session or with Presbytery, people ask lots of questions. And you can come to resent it, but not if you step back and think about it. These men are trying to protect the church. The church is precious. You know, we don't want to get some snake. Or, or sometimes it's not just that the person's a snake. It's that they're just immature and not ready. And, and the uh, responsibility will will cause them to, to, to slip up and make all sorts of mistakes that will actually damage people. Then he says this in verse 18 through 19. He says they're enemies of the cross. He goes on and he says, uh, For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So think of that description. It's intense. It is intense how he's describing them. And first off, they're their enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is saying this about other Christian leaders. He's saying that they're against the cross of Christ. Now, I was looking at some of the commentators what this means, whether it's just focusing on the, the, the particular work of justification um, on the cross I think it probably just means the totality of the work of Jesus. Because that's where he goes in the, the verse, uh, verses um, 20 and 21. Just saying that they, everything they teach is against what, what the key doctrines of Christianity are. And namely that uh, we live for eternal things. And we, we know that this world's fallen. And God's calling us out of this world to a world that will be perfected at some point um, in the future. And these men... Are, are settled on earthly things, right? They don't have any eternal mindset. They think this dump 
right? There's beautiful things about this world until your friends start dying, until you start getting cancer, until you start seeing the reality of war and mass starvation, and uh, until you meet someone that's been sexually abused. Then you start to realize this world isn't right, right? This world's messed up. It's not our home. And these men are enemies of the cross of Christ because they're, they're dragging us away from what the cross calls us to, right? Which is uh, cross is calling us into that upward call of God that's in the rest of chapter 3, which is we're looking forward to full redemption. Like we'll be forgiven and God will cosmically make a new world, a new heavens and a new earth where all these things won't be true anymore, right? Where righteousness dwells. And these guys are calling them, uh, their eyes down to earth. He says, Who, whose end is destruction. So he's just saying that these people are not, these people are straight up heretics. They're against God. Now, why is he saying it? Note, he hasn't brought up any doctrine. None at all. Now, it could be that these are the Judaizers that he talked about earlier in the chapter. You know, it's hard to say. Um, it is in the context, but I'd just like to point out that he's, he, he's looking at their life and saying their life testifies that they're not Christians, that they're heading to destruction. And usually, um, we're not allowed to call anyone a heretic unless, like, I don't know, We've got like mass like pages and pages of proof that they are in fact a heretic, um, but he he looks at their life and says this is where they're heading. Then he says, "Whose God is their appetite?" And again, these are people that are controlled by their lust and urges. That's what they're controlled by. Again, that's an earthly focus. A very close friend of mine who ended up rejecting the faith. Um, the moment I when I really started to realize something was wrong with him. And we were really close. And uh, was when, don't take this the wrong way, okay? When he was a, he started becoming a foodie, right? Like just obsessed with food. And like the best re- restaurants to go in town. And he hadn't been that way. He was getting quite fat too. He was eating a lot. Um, but he was just, all, he became obsessed with all the best things, right? The best coffee, the best sushi. And he, it, it was usually the best coffee or the best sushi. He knew, he knew his stuff. Um, but I just started to see that he was really controlled by his appetites. And I remember talking to him about it. And I said, now, look, dude, I'm allergic to everything that's good on earth. So I'm not, I, I'm, I could be, um, this could me just be overreacting to think you're focusing on food too much. But I do want to warn you that it seems like you're just caught up with your, your stomach too much. Another translation says, uh, who God is, their, God is their belly. Anyway, it was like three months later that he apostatized from the faith. Now, I'm not saying if you're a foodie, you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that obsession with the things of the world was a red flag, right? That's what I'm saying. And uh, so w- some other examples, I, I was, people that are just obsessed with restoring a car. Right? People that are obsessed with building the perfect house. You know, people that are obsessed with their body. Look, you're all, gravity will get you. It's, it's all going to sag, right? You know, if you're skinny, you'll be that weird skinny at some point. This is, this is entropy, right? Don't deny it. You know it's coming. But people that are obsessed with their body, you know, this sort of, um, they're controlled by these things. 
It's a sign that something isn't right, generally speaking. I know after my daughter died that I was obsessed with making this family video. I just spent hours and hours and hours and hours on it, trying to perfect and time up the music with my really cheap um, video editing software. And I'll tell you why I did it, is I just didn't want to deal with the pain, and I just didn't want to pray, and I just wanted to tune out. So even as I look at some of the obsessions that I had in my life, the motivations behind it weren't good. And so these are, God is their belly. They're controlled by their appetite. And then it says, whose glory is in their shame. So they do bad things, and they're proud of it. Now, a lot of you guys don't have the same background I do. But all I can think about is the health and wealth preachers. When I was growing up, these were the guys who were on TV, and I hated Christians because of these guys. I was like, man, Christians have to be the dumbest people on the entire planet. These guys clearly are just after money, you know. And, uh, but <laughs> I was talking to Andrew about this beforehand. Trinity uh, Broadcast Network is this big Christian um, station. It always has non-Trinitarians preaching on it, too. But anyway, they have this big throne that's like covered in gold that people sit in um, to do their prophecy updates on. I'm sure they think tomorrow the whole earth is going to blow up. But, um, but uh, and they just, they just are really bragging about how much money they have. And I've seen some of these guys talk about, um, you know, how, oh, I, clearly I'm faithful. I have a $25 million home. And then the IRS raids their house. So, but they're glorying and they're greed. Another example would be uh, not, not long ago in Bloomington, Indiana. This may happen over the whole nation, but I have a lot of friends in Bloomington, that they had drag queens um, come in and read stories to little kids, right? So this man, sick in his head, um, he had some stupid name, like a whole lot of love or something worse than that, something worse than that. And he's coming in there, and, and parents are actually bringing their kids to have this guy that's, you know, not well. I mean, that's, he's sinning is what's really going on. It's not just a mental problem. It's that he's sinning. Uh, but he's bragging about, like, what's, what he's doing is good. He's glorying into something he should be ashamed of. And, and preachers do this too, right? Preachers do this. And then the summary statement is who set their minds on earthly things. People go into the ministry for all sorts of terrible reasons. Even There's people that even for a time are orthodox. Um, and and they, you know, they could be like us and subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and know all that stuff and be able to spit out big words and even explain it well. But uh, sometimes they're doing it just for status for money, because they like to be in front of people and they like attention. Uh, it's, what motivates them, though, is not the Lord. And Paul is saying, that's what these guys are like. You don't want to be like that. Right? Do you want to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Do you want your end to be destruction? Do you want to be a slave to your appetite? Do you want to glory in your shame? Right, are you going to set your mind on earthly things? So he's telling them to not be like them, but to follow his example. And this raises a, an important theological distinction uh, between what we call the visible church and the invisible church. 
And that doesn't mean that there's two churches. It sounds like that. Uh, what it refers to is that there's two different vantage points from which to view the church. Uh, so the invisible church refers to the church from the vantage point of God. Uh, the church isn't, the church as God sees it isn't confined to a single nation, time in history, or denomination. Quite the contrary, uh, it's, this one church consists of all the elect, that means true Christians that God has chosen before the beginning of time, uh, past, present, and future. Therefore, this universal church, we call it universal because it includes all of them, right? Uh, while perfectly visible to God, because God is outside of time, God's not bound by time, is in a sense invisible to man. We can't see that. Um, man can't transcend his place in time. Consequently, our sight and discernment is limited. Uh, we cannot definitively know who is and isn't a Christian. Uh, God, on the other hand, is omniscient, right? He knows everything. Matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 9, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's referring to the invisible church. All members of this invisible church are known to God. Matter of fact, the members of this church are registered in heaven, according to Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12, 23. So mankind doesn't have access to that heavenly membership role. It's invisible to us. So when we say invisible church, we're just talking about all the people through all time that are really Christians. That's the invisible church. The visible church, on the other hand, refers uh, to the church from the vantage point of man, from those that we can see. Uh, the larger catechism defines it uh, simply. The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess true religion and of their children. In other words, the visible church is, includes anyone that professes true religion. doesn't matter they actually are Christians. It's just those who profess and they are part of a local church. That's what it means by society there. That they belong to the, the, um, the earthbound organization of the church. Uh, now, some of these people aren't Christians. We know that. That's, that's what Paul's saying right here. For many walk of whom I told you and now tell you even weeping that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Some of these people man pulpits and they're not even Christians. Also, in Matthew 7, we know that um, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name, done many mighty works in your name, prophesy in your names? And Jesus will look at him and say, depart from me. I do, not, I do not know you, you who practice lawlessness. And we also have in John that, that many of these false teachers, they begin with the church and then uh, they don't continue though. Right? So not everyone in a church is a real Christian. That's a very important distinction. Because some will say now to be in the church is to be saved, definitively. And then, of course, they're going to have to tr put um, their trust in the perfect purity of that local church. And they'll have to probably put trust in baptism or put a sort of trust in the Lord's Supper or something like that. But they're going to put uh, trust in something visible and not in faith or, or call people to true faith and trust in the doctrine of, of uh, the gospel. So that's a big distinction that we have to maintain that is being uh, blurred more and more. Uh, we don't know who is a Christian for sure. Uh, only God knows. We can look at fruit, though. And based off fruit, we can, um, 
make a, a relatively good assessment. Clearly so, because Paul says these guys uh, end his destruction. Most likely just meaning if they continue on this path, that they'll be destroyed. That their testimony demonstrates that they're not Christians. I mean, nowadays, of course, that would be considered judgmental. But we are to form judgments according to God's word. We just don't form judgments according to our own opinion on, on those matters. And we, and we should not be hypocritical judges. But uh, if we look at someone and they claim to be a Christian, but they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, we can say, you're not a Christian. Or we, we have someone that claims to be a Christian, um, but they're shacking up with their girlfriend, right? And then we can uh, say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Here's what Scripture says. And if, and if they repent and they fall, that's great. But if they say, you know what, I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what Scripture says. Then we can say, you should examine yourself. You're not safe, right? This is not good. And uh, so we can look at the fruit of their life and we can examine what they believe. But where that should start first is with all of us doing that ourselves, Right? So we're we're getting ready to go through the Reformed pastor. And I think that's what the first chapter does. In the Reformed pastor, it calls pastors to take personal inventory. You know, is is God working in my life? So the, the fruits we should look for is a love of holiness and a hatred of sin. Right? Faith towards God and, and the fruit of the Spirit. And what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc., etc. Not speaking in tongues. No Pentecostals around here, but that's what they say up in the Midwest. Um, but these men are in the church, but their lives testify that they are not Christians. And then he continues to go on in verse 20 and 21. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's doing here is there's two things happening. Uh, first, he's trying to say, don't be like these guys. You need to have a focus on the heavenly. But another important thing to realize is that the, the, the Philippian church, the people in Philippi, were almost certainly Roman citizens. And it was, a, it was a big thing to be a Roman citizen. You had all sorts of rights and protection. And a lot of these guys could be proud about that. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's related to our country. To be an American means to have all sorts of benefits. I mean, we all are filthy rich. Every last person in here, I don't care if you're struggling to pay your bill, we are filthy rich, globally speaking, right? We also have, um, like, you know, the guy over there in North Korea is not going to do anything. He's just, we are, China is still kind of scared of us. Don't have the, the news think that, we don't have, I mean, what do we have? Thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons, huge, huge military. And there's a lot of people right now that are just really proud to be Americans. And people are making that synonymous with being a Christian again, uh, kind of in reaction to the radical left right now. But we don't want to take our pride in the things of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? Countries come and go. Rome, no one ever thought Rome would, would fall, Right? At times, they just thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And Rome is, there's nothing. It's just a little town compared to what it once was in terms of its power in the world. You know, Egypt once ruled the world. You know, Egypt's nothing anymore. Israel beat e- Egypt down in six days. And um, so he's saying to them, look, your citizenship is in heaven. That's what I want you to be focused on. That's, that's what, um, what matters most. Not that you're a Roman citizen. Not that that doesn't matter. Paul uses that to his advantage. 
later um, or in the book of Acts to get a, a trial before Caesar. But he's calling them to have a heavenly mindset. He says, um, for our citizenship is in heaven for which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been saved, but we're waiting for that second coming. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. So this is something we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to something bigger than a job promotion, bigger to hitting our goal weight, whatever. You know, we have uh, something, the finish line down there. So this still has that sort of race metaphor is echoing here. That's earlier in the chapter. And then he says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And again, this, this is a reminding people that the pleasure that comes from this world, right? Being, having your belly be your God is, is so temporal. It's, it's so short. It doesn't last long at all. And it's crazy how quick uh, you age, how fast things move. It's crazy how sicknesses uh, come into your life that you never expected and problems. And uh, it's, it's, it's easy when you're younger, I think, uh, to think that this world's good. But as you get older, you start to feel the humble state of your body. Your body's breaking down. Things aren't the way they should be. And you can only, you can only hold things up with medicine and workouts for so long. And so we have to look forward to something other than this world, and that is glorification. At some point, at some point, Christ is going to come back, and then everything with this world that's wrong is going to be set right. And we have to look forward to that. And then he says, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. This Christ is God. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to transform people's bodies from a humble state to this fallen state into perfection. So what Paul's doing in this whole area, this, this whole section of scripture, is he's, he's just showing how this is against what these teachers have been saying. And I remember once Benny Hen saying, um, he says, you guys know who Benny Hen is? Right? He's a guy like prays for people and they like shake and fall over. Um, there's some really good YouTube videos where they make his coat into a lightsaber because he'd hit people with their coat and they'd fall over. I remember hearing Benny Hen. I mean, my dad used to watch him and make fun of him before I was a Christian and after I was a Christian. But um, he would, uh, he said, they say they have streets of gold in heaven. What good does that do me down here? I need gold now. Right? That's his attitude. Well, first off, they're saying that to show how majestic heaven is and how better it is in this earth. Right? Uh, but we can make fun of Benny Hen. But we, and point out how, how foolish and ungodly that is. But how does that reside in your own heart? How in your own heart are you earthly minded? What are the things that give you joy? What are the things that comfort you? You know, we can get small comfort from our friends here, from a cup of coffee, from a beautiful day, from all those sorts of things. God does comfort us and, and demonstrate his power. But we ultimately have to be looking down the line at uh, the, the resurrection. That is the hope. And this world is messed up. And any preacher that comes in and tells you that you can have your best life now is trying to get your money. Especially if he's got, if he's got a, a smile that could blind you. you know. Um, but this is what Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about the example of preachers that call people down to earthly things. And that's what people want to focus on. They want five practical steps. 
right? Ten ways to make their marriage better. They don't want to be called to uh, the heavenly things, to the high things um, that actually will get us through the difficulties of this life. So again, I, wanna, I want to uh, commend you to Robbie Lowe's article called uh, uh, The Truth About Men in Church. Think about that. But what I'd leave you with on this Sabbath evening is just, Lord, reveal to me, where am I earthly minded? And also, if, you, if you've been allowing preachers into your home that are leading you astray, you need to turn that stuff off. And I, I like to listen to a lot of business books. And there's one book lately I was listening to. I was like, man, this guy hates God. I have to stop this. I, I can't think that I'm above being influenced by this. And I got rid of it. And so, so brethren, look forward to the, the world that's coming and uh, hold the things of the world loosely in your hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for faithful ministers who have fathered us, that have loved us, that weren't uh, merely instructors, but actually took the time to talk to us about our life, about the ways we've gone astray, uh, about the real problems, the ones that were there to hold us while we cry through life's struggles. God, we thank you for these men. We pray you would bless and encourage them wherever they're at. God, we especially think of our session. We think of Pastor Andrew and uh, David and Ryan, that you would encourage them in their work, God. Protect them uh, from the attacks of the devil and being led astray, Father. God, we pray for those that are in officer training, that they would uh, not seek the things of earth, but the things of heaven, and that they would be motivated to office uh, for your glory and for the service of your church. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us the ways in which uh, we have just bought into lies. God, that we are part of this Instagram culture that's trying to get the perfect body thinking that will make us happy. We're part of this culture that thinks if we get the perfect retirement or get our business to this point, that this will somehow satisfy us. But all these things are fading away. And only the things done for you with an eternal mindset matters. Father, we ask that you give us a heavenly mind that glorifies you and sets us free from the slavery of this world. In your son's name we pray, amen.